Hello, friends. Have you noticed that you can get caught up in consuming content? Or maybe you notice you are hyper, hyper focused on the doing. Empaths, we often consume. And I know because that was me too, soaking up information from all my favorite teachers and mentors. But it wasn't until I started focusing more on the being and embodiment work that the door to massive clarity was finally unlocked. And I no longer got confused about what was my energy versus everybody else's. I was able to become a more clear channel for creation and as a result, transform my life, business, and health. In fact, my meditation and embodiment practice is what helped me have a nearly $40,000 month this past January, see the highest downloaded month of the podcast, and finally release a lot of unnecessary stress. And my clients felt it and saw it in their lives too. It wasn't reading more articles. It wasn't doing more busy work. So I'm inviting you to graduate from the spongy empath consumer into the self-activated sovereign healer. You can take your podcast listening experience from, ooh, I feel seen, heard, and inspired to, holy shit, I actually feel different. My being has shifted. I am the embodiment of the woman I desire to be. The Third Eye Collective is a simple way to upgrade your experience and commit not only to a meditation practice that complements your healing, but also receive personalized coaching so you can be clear on what direct actions to implement into your highest goals. There are two simple ways to get involved at $11 or $22 a month with no commitment. So if this is calling your name, join this amazing and growing community. Welcome to the Uncensored Empath, a place for us to discuss highly sensitive energy, illness, healing, and transformation. My name is Sarah Small, and I'm a life and success coach for empaths who want to create a thriving body, business, and life. Think of this podcast as your no BS guide to navigating life, health, and entrepreneurship. You'll get straight to the point, totally holistic tips from me in real time as I navigate this healing and growth journey right beside you. This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to today's episode. I, uh, it's very, very few instances when I am lost for words and just the impact of the information shared on today's interview has me feeling a little speechless. There's so much yet to understand and discover around trauma, but Liz Molinar, my guest today, has been studying this for 20 years. So she is such a wealth of knowledge, and I mean, my mind is just a little bit blown on how much there is to understand about this, but also how much impact she's had on so many people's life who have struggled with trauma or are a trauma survivor. Liz herself is a trauma survivor. She's also a trauma counselor, and she has been globally recognized as a trauma recovery expert. Again, 20 years ago, she pioneered Australia's first trauma recovery program. Isn't it kind of crazy to think just 20 years ago, the first trauma recovery program was being developed, yet I think mankind, humans, have suffered from and experienced trauma for many, many years 
many years. Uh, her program's called Heal for Life, and she now has a book out called Heal for Life as well. And it's it's been independently evaluated, the program, to achieve significant long-term benefits to mental health, emotional and social functioning, pain and vitality. They have helped over 8,500 adults and children heal from childhood trauma more specifically. So Liz is going to be sharing with us practical and proven strategies as well as tools for healing trauma in today's episode, which she then expands upon in her book, Heal for Life, How to Heal Yourself from the Pain of Childhood Trauma. And it's just mind-blowing friends, <laughs> how tra- trauma impacts the brain, the nervous system, our behaviors. There are many types of trauma. And when we look at the s- statistics that I'll, I'll share at the beginning here, it really just opens our eyes up to the way that our mental health system works and where there are some cracks and uh, broken parts and where there's just, I'll say, room for improvement. There's definitely room for improvement in the way that we diagnose and treat mental health issues across across the globe. And the Heal for Life centers are in Australia, the UK, and the Philippines. While there's not one here in the US, there are still ways to get uh, support. You guys know this is something that is really close to my heart, having experienced trauma myself, but also family members who have experienced immense trauma and I just don't want to shy away from these hard conversations. I don't want to shy away from talking about hard things because it is more important to me than ever to shine a light on the darkness so that we can start to heal and we can overcome and remember how freaking resilient we are as human beings. So let's hear what Liz has to say. All right, Liz, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. I was just telling you before I hit record that I listened to your TED Talk and there are some statistics inside of that conversation that are just so crazy to me. I ended up actually writing a post about it on my social media and being like, everyone needs to go listen to this TEDx talk. I'm just going to repeat a few of those stats so people um, can become aware that I want to talk about it. So 82 to 86% of people who have suffered from bipolar disorder have suffered from childhood trauma. 90% of people who have suffered from borderline personality disorder have suffered from childhood trauma. 80% of people who have suffered from depression have suffered from childhood trauma. And 69.9% of psychiatric patients have suffered from childhood trauma. This is an astronomical amount or high percentage. And I know that you were inspired to do this work through your own life experience. Liz, can you start by talking to us about what your experience has been that inspired this work and why are these numbers so high in relation to childhood trauma? Well, in the early 1990s, I started uh, discovering and recognizing, remembering my own uh, childhood abuse. Mm -hmm. And I was then a very successful woman in the the film and television area, considered one of the most 10 most powerful women in the Australian media, Australian television at the time. So I was very able to kind of look around. And when I was 
probably one of the first people in Australia to say, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I got an extraordinary response. Thousands of people wrote into me and said, me too. And what I found extraordinary was I couldn't find anyone. I couldn't find the support I expected to automatically be able to find. Yeah. It was yeah. as if there were no organizations, there were no real specialists. It was kind of ignored. So I realized that it was kind of up to me. So I decided to start an organization, uh, a national organization to bring together all survivors of child abuse. And I did that and we quickly had oh, over 50 groups all over Australia. And one of the things I also learned was how reluctant survivors are to acknowledge, to connect, uh, how frightened they all are. So that was a huge learning experience. Yeah. And then in my own journey of healing, I kept finding, although I had a wonderful psychologist, because she wasn't a survivor, she didn't really quite understand trauma. And I'd say to her, no, no, you're not doing, that's not, that doesn't feel right to me. That, that's not working. So, and then I found other survivors were saying the same thing. They don't get us. <laughs> so I thought, I think what we need to do is have our own place to heal. So I sold up my business and uh, my husband and I sold up our house and everything. We built a center for survivors of child abuse. Mm -hmm. And that was, that opened over 20 years ago. And the idea was that us as survivors would employ health professionals who were survivors and we would jointly work out together what we needed to do in order to heal. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we knew then, and which is an absolute, absolute necessity, is that in order to heal, we have to feel safe. So the center that, that we created had to be feel totally safe. And just like anyone listening who wants to heal, in your own home environment, you've got to feel safe. So, I mean, we could talk about that, but, but anyway, discovering exactly how you really establish emotional safety took, took a little while. Yeah. Um, and th then we devised a program, uh, including, and, and that started, and that was um, over 20 years ago, and eight and a half thousand people have been to the center. We have centers in the Philippines and England, as well as Australia. And it's always run by survivors for survivors, because I think we know what we need to do in order to heal. And, and I know what, what I needed. And so I, I kind of can come from intuition even now, if I'm trying to think how to help someone. I, I can come from my knowledge as well as all I've learned over the 20 years of, you know, getting a master's of counseling and doing one when I then started really studying the brain. Mm -hmm. And um, just to add, what I also found is what we as survivors intuitively knew over 25 years ago, what, what is what now neuroscientists are totally acknowledging. So what we knew is what we needed in order to heal. I can now tell people the scientific reason why what we do works. So, um, so, so I can't remember the question, but hopefully that was the answer <laughs> that you were looking for. Cause I can't oh, remember. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. And I'd like, I, you said, you know, we could dive more into why do we need to feel safe in order to heal? And, and I want to unpack that a little bit and understand that better because I think so many of us try to heal when we're in survival mode and when we're in a stress state. So how does trauma impact our brain and our nervous system and why do we need to feel safe to be able to heal? Okay, so trauma impacts our brain uh, because our brains are geared for survival. Each of our brains, you know, nature, mm -hmm. Darwin's theory, 
whatever is about survival. So anytime anything happens that is more emotion than we can deal with, which overwhelms our ability, ability to adapt, and at age-appropriate way we feel is life-threatening, the brain goes into an extraordinary action. It kind of the stress hormones are already released, and I'll explain in a moment what that means. But at this moment of overwhelming emotion, the vagus system cuts in and we go into a freeze. And when that happens, three vital parts of the brain are cut off. And I'm saying this very simplistically, by the way, but I think simplicity is the way we can understand it. So cut off is Broca's area. That speechless terror, you know, those moments when you literally cannot find your voice. Mm. So finding our voice figuratively and actually is key is a key to healing. The prefrontal cortex is cut off, and that's that gives us an ability to be aware of other people, reason, logic. It's an incredibly important part of the brain. And also in the left side of our brain, because we have two sides to our brain, uh, the hippocampus is cut off. Why is that important? Because that is our conscious memory. So at these moments of trauma, which are not all the time we're being abused, only moments when we think we're going to die, at these moments of high trauma, we do not remember. So uh, that's why, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just finish this bit, stay on this track. So that gets locked in the brain. And when that occurs, also locked into the brain, through the senses, through anything that our brain might connect to that event, whenever that occurs again, we will be what we call triggered. Mm -hmm. So if I smelt mothballs while I was being raped, whenever I smelt mothballs from that moment on, I would go into a triggered reaction. What is a triggered reaction? It's this fight, flight, freeze response. But importantly, it also impacts those three parts of the brain. So when we're triggered, we don't know what we're sort of saying or doing. We don't realize the effect it's having on anyone else. And in order to de-trigger ourselves, we have to say how we are feeling, and that mm -hmm. deactivates the brain. Mm -hmm. So understanding that then gets us to understand why it has such an impact. And whenever we don't feel safe, we release stress hormones which is the beginning of that reaction. Yeah. So with really stress hormones, we are not able to access our trauma. We feel uneasy. Um, I could go through the whole things that stress hormones do. I mean, they, they stop our digestive system. They stop our immune system. They stop those three parts of the brain. They have us on edge. We can't study. That's why we all do so badly at school. A lot of us do very badly at school. Mm -hmm. But we don't feel safe. We can't heal. And a lot of us stay because we don't really realize it in unsafe environments or we isolate ourselves and we do everything that actually doesn't help us to heal. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the different types of trauma? Because I think when we hear that word trauma, many of our minds go into these very catastrophic events or like deep tragedies that maybe people have experienced or we know of people who have experienced those things in their life. And then we think of our own life. And, and if there haven't been those like deeply catastrophic things, we think, oh, well, I've never, I've never experienced trauma. And I'd love for you to kind of debunk that for us today and explain what are the types of trauma? What can that look like? Well, for, for a child, for a baby who loses its mother at birth, that is trauma. 
mm-hmm. uh, because the amygdala, the part of the brain that, that sets off this reaction, is the first part of our brain to form. A, 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 a two-year-old who loses its mother by death or divorce, mm-hmm. that's life-threatening to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot tell you how many people who've, who've come with things like spider or snake huge fears and that's because when they were very tiny usually under the age of one their mother or father or someone has had a big reaction to a snake or spider in front of them Mm. and that activates this process the biggest impact on the developing brain is not having any emotional input at all so i don't know if listeners remember when the romanian orphans were collected but it's you get there's the brain grows from external stimulus so if there's no external stimulus if your mother's on drugs for the first six months of your life uh, then that is the most enormous trauma <laughs> so trauma is not sexual abuse solely it's not massive fires or massive floods those are the obvious it's the emotional impact on a little child of things that are outside the child's control anything relating to your natural mother or your father in those first two years of life is life-threatening because nature makes it as humans we are totally dependent on our parents for the first years of life so if something happens to either of them it is a trauma and people go oh nothing happened to me oh yeah my mum died when i was three and my uh, you know etc and that's enough Mm -hmm. to have an extraordinary impact How does then trauma, regardless of what flavor of trauma we may have experienced in our life, how does it affect our behavior and our emotions as we continue to live our life? Okay, so behaviorally, I'll talk first. Yeah. Behaviorally, I think the biggest impact are these triggers because it means we can suddenly turn to anger. It means we can suddenly withdraw. It means we can suddenly dissociate and not listen. So I think firstly that that is very much when we talk about behavioral impacts, that's very much minimized, um, very much minimized. Um, my mind is blank. It's Saturday morning here in Australia and my mind's gone blank on other emotions, but I'll come back to that. Uh, but it- it means we're, we're operating on high alert. We're operating from reaction. Yeah. We, we, are, we are all the time waiting to see what other people think of us. And one of the impacts, which is deep inside, is that when trauma occurs, we are totally powerless. So we have a feeling of powerlessness and that often, often a feeling of worthlessness. I feel worthless. I used to feel, I don't now much, um, I used to feel really worthless and powerless because no one helped me when I was being abused as a child. Now, no one knew it was happening. And in the 1940s, uh, nobody uh, you know, knew about child abuse. So I'm not blaming anyone in any of that. But for my little self inside, nobody cared. Nobody listened. I didn't matter. So mm-hmm. that has a real impact on my sense of self. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the hippocampus, which I was telling you about before, which is what is cut off, in the moments of high trauma and is impacted by trauma, it's impacted by stress hormones, that also gives us our sense of self. So our sense of self is deeply impacted when we suffer from trauma. Mm-hmm. We also don't have good connections around our brain, that sense of being worthwhile. So that gives us all sort we don't trust, so we don't have easy to have good relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on. Mm-hmm. Ask me another question instead. <laughs> 
Yeah. So trauma obviously affects us in many ways, behaviorally and emotionally. And you said that little self inside of you. And I think you were referring to what many of us call the, the inner child. And how, how is the inner child then that is still part of each of us today, even in adulthood, part of our, part of our being, how is that part of the healer? How does that come into the healing process? Okay, so whatever one wants to call it, my inner self, my emotional self, could call it my right brain because that's really what it is. Mm. It's really the part of myself that I have suppressed or forgotten. And for me, it's the true essence of me. It's also the sort of little girl I was born to be before I suffered from abuse. So she, she leads me. And, of course, in order to cope in life, like so many of us, I really switched into left brain activity. So left brain activity is being very logical, very sensible, uh, not feeling emotions because they're very dangerous. So I'm not going to feel emotions. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to you know, get on with life, be successful, do things. I'm going to be really active. I'm going to be a workaholic. So I do all those things to hide my, my little inner self. So I stop being my true self, my authentic self, which for me um, can be described as this inner child. Mm-hmm. Everything you just said describes me. And uh, for so long, I just was living in a state of being fine and out of fear of experiencing the wide range of emotions and like what that meant or not knowing how to navigate those emotions and also throwing myself into more of the left brain logical you know, let's do one step, one, two, three, four, five to get to the end destination and work really hard and be successful. And so much of my inner child and my right brain, that creative side that I, I love now, I turned off for so many years, I think, because of uh, limiting beliefs and childhood trauma. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I think a lot of listeners are, are have experienced some type of trauma in their life. And I'm sure they're, they're asking themselves this question of like, okay, cool. You, it sounds like you've healed, but like, what about me? So can, can we, can anyone overcome trauma more permanently? Well, from the very beginning, I absolutely knew I was going to heal. Maybe that was arrogance, but I kind of wasn't going to stay the way I was. I was going to go back to the person who was, I was before um, or, or better. Um, so I always knew that, but it was actually only after I started healing that neuroscientists started discovering that the brain was plastic. What does that mean? It means that our brain is made out of over 80 billion what are called neurons, and they connect together. And they can reconnect. So our brain can change completely. Now, social welfare services, society, life has not really embraced that yet. So people say, oh, you've got bipolar disorder. Oh, you you know, that you've suffered from trauma. Oh, you're never going to be okay. This is a life sentence. Trauma is not a life sentence. No mental illness, in my belief, is a life sentence. Our brain is plastic. We can heal from anything. But in particular, we can heal from the way we feel about ourselves. We can heal in our attitude to life. We can heal. It's just we have to repair our brains and not our lungs or our heart or our stomach. And people label this mental illness. And I don't know why it isn't a physical illness, just like any other physical illness. Mm -hmm. My brain, if you did a scan of it before I started healing, 
would look different to how it would look now. It would look dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it, I, I, I see in the future um, going and a doctor doing a brain scan and saying, oh, I can see this part of your brain doesn't connect up. Oh, your corpus callosum is really thin. Oh, your corpus <laughs> hippocampus is damaged. And oh, you've suffered from child abuse. Right, let's start doing action. Let's change the way your brain is linking up at this moment. So mm-hmm. healing is absolutely possible, but we can only heal through the emotional right brain. That means we can only heal, I believe, well, neuroscientists agree with me, fortunately, by releasing the emotions that were suppressed at the time of the trauma, which are which we're holding all throughout our body and our brain in so many more ways than science yet really has identified. Mm-hmm. But it's releasing that fear that activated this reaction I was talking about. That is what I have discovered and I know for, I know is the only way through, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. all disagree, but I know and that's why I kind of listened with lots of other survivors. We all listened and learned from each other and discovered we all – we all found that this was the way. So it, it's not that it's a unique or different way. It's putting together what we all knew mm-hmm. and discovering, yeah, if we release the fear, we heal. But we don't want to release the fear because we're all terrified of releasing the fear. So we'll do absolutely anything to avoid getting to the fear. We'll become alcoholics, drug addicts. We'll become workaholics. We don't want to go there because that's nature helping us protect ourselves. So you and I... Wouldn't have want, neither of us wanted to go there. <laughs> We'd much rather be successful, do other things, mm-hmm. because to acknowledge that hurting part of ourselves would be to acknowledge our vulnerability, mm-hmm. and that doesn't feel very safe. And that, that's the courage that healing from child abuse in, needs. That's the courage. That's why we need help from everybody encouraging us to say, yep, you can change, yep, you can heal. Mm-hmm. And sadly at the moment, we don't get enough of that. That's why I'm talking to you, to say to everyone, you can heal. I'm so glad that you brought awareness and attention to that and just that it is possible, even if it is scary. And if like, it's going to be scary, right? Like that, because your nervous system is doing anything and everything to protect you. Absolutely. That first step is always going to be a little bit scary to start that path towards healing, towards releasing the fear, towards starting to heal some of the emotions that have been suppressed or repressed for potentially decades, right? Absolutely. That is exactly right. So people will do... I'm lucky because originally I I started uncovering my stuff through getting sick. And still, if if I'm triggered, if a new memory wants to come up, I will get physically sick. So I'll usually be physically sick for about five days and then I'll think, oh, is this a memory? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's a bit easier, my triggering, but that's why triggers are treasures because they can help us Mm. unpack, unpack our childhood. And our brain is wonderful. Gosh, it's amazing. If we don't deal with it, we get nightmares. We don't sleep. Uh, We have panic attacks. We have anxiety attacks. All these ways our brain is saying, hey, hey, come on, heal. It's, Mm -hmm. It's the pain that you feel physically we feel mentally if we don't get on to our healing journey Mm -hmm. anyone listening suffers from anxiety attacks or panic attacks or you can heal by acknowledging the fear literally writing this down right now that (laughs) triggers are treasures that is such a powerful stance to take on when something you know is 
gives us that little, that like, Ooh, that didn't feel good. Ooh, that bothers me. Ooh, that doesn't feel so, so good inside my system. Or I want to run away from that. Or my immediate reaction is to, uh, retreat and, and like repress and run away. Oh, well, there's something deeper going on there that could, if you wish, and if you want to go on that journey, help you unpack what's underneath it and fully understand it so that you can process it and heal it in a way that is, like you said, in a safe environment that allows them to then not have to experience that trigger anymore because it's fully released and understood in the body. Exactly. You you have said it perfectly. No wonder you do podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And so those statistics that I started with, I want to loop back to those because... I mean, it's, it's kind of undeniable in my opinion of if there's this many people with these specific mental health diagnoses that have also overlapping these suffered from childhood trauma, there's something there, right? So what is the link between depression, anxiety, childhood trauma that you've seen in your work? Well, I, I just said about anxiety, mm-hmm. anxiety is this, um, as, as I say, I, I, I'm saying this in very simple my language. Mm-hmm. It, it, anxiety is simply me refusing to feel the fear. I've read it endlessly from many researchers that depression is the suppression of anger and fear. And anger is how we cover our fear. With mental illness, what really upsets me is nobody uh, has, has, they keep researching genes or epigenes or reasons why we get different mental illness instead of saying hey we've got this staggering statistic let's look at that mm-hmm. now yesterday i was working with someone who was a guest and she's been diagnosed with a mass of things including schizophrenia and i said to her oh and what do your what do your voices tell you and she said oh she said at the moment they're telling me i'm a slut and to shut up and i said oh i said no who in your childhood called you a slut because it didn't look like a slut to me. And she said, oh, you know, my father always called me. A, I'm trying to change the story, obviously. And my father called me a slut. And I said, well, do you think maybe maybe it's your inner self trying to say, address this lie? Because you're not a slut. So it, those voices, there's a wonderful organization called Hearing Voices, a worldwide organization, which just says hearing voices is a natural, normal thing that happens if you suffered from childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Our brain is amazing in what it does uh, to try and make the unacceptable acceptable. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, uh, Mental illness is the same. And I'm not saying all mental illness. I'm not saying you you can be born with your brain wired incorrectly and it can't be wired correctly. I'm just saying that those are the statistics. So why aren't we addressing childhood trauma when anyone presents with mental illness as a starting point? Because everybody who comes to Heal for Life for a Healing Week as pretty well most of them have been, pretty well all of them have been diagnosed with some mental illness, even mm-hmm. if it's PTSD, and they go on this um, journey of medications and CBT and just not being told, yep, you can heal, yep, you just got to get on to, on with it. And so that I think that's really unhelpful. 
Yeah. And some people may choose medication. That That's fine. Mm-hmm. It's a choice. If you have cancer, you have a choice to heal or not heal. Uh, with childhood trauma, no one tells you you've got a choice. This is what you have to do in order to heal uh, or you can not heal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to heal. If, if people want to stay with their symptoms, it's it's a life choice. Yeah. I think you're so spot on though that the majority of people who seek out help and do want to change are often only given one option, which is medication or maybe medication coupled with like talk therapy, but that talk therapy may never ever get to the questions that you're talking about, which go back to what was your childhood like? Who did call you? Who called you a slut when you were younger? Asking questions like that that allow them to uncover that there it may not just be the diagnosis that was originally given to them as a label, but their the root underneath it could be much further and from their past and much deeper ingrained in their programming and their system. And until you get to that point then it's really hard for people to see results. And I think that's why so many people are like, oh, well, you know, is this medication helping? Well, I don't, I don't know. Like they don't know, right? Because it's, it's never getting to the root of the problem. And you, ha- you have so many tools and resources that you've created with Heal for Life. So I'd love to hear what are some of the steps towards the, within an approach that you take towards healing that childhood trauma that are alternative to what at least most people in the U.S. where I live are getting more of this blanket answer of, you know, here's antidepressants and here's some medication to help you sleep at night. Now, see you next year. Well, the first thing I want to say is <laughs> the reason I'm talking to you today is because after 20 years, I thought everything I know I'm going to put down in a book because I really want all survivors to be helped. That's my driving driving force. So I, I've put down in the book everything that I've learned over 20 years that each of us needs to do in order to heal, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I thought if I put it all down and make it available to any, anyone, uh, then, then I've kind of that's my life work. Um, but the first thing I think in order to heal, we have to understand what it is to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And then we have to choose to create a safe place for ourselves. Mm. So, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is to recognize not to be frightened of our emotions, not to run away from fear, but to recognize that fear is driving our lives and to be prepared to say when we are triggered, um, when we feel anxious, when we have a panic attack, when we have a nightmare, say out loud, you have to say it out loud and listen, everyone, because this is probably the best tool you're going to get. <laughs> if you say out loud and look in a mirror or at somebody, because the optical neurons are very strong, if you say, I feel frightened or I feel scared, and you acknowledge the fear, it's like it takes the accelerator off your right brain and that because your left brain is now engaged because in speaking you're engaging your left brain mm-hmm. and immediately because you've acknowledged the fear it lessens so to st- and to then recognize okay what, what other emotions don't I allow myself to feel I never allow myself to feel anger why not because either my dad was always angry or my mum was always angry or I was told never to be angry. Uh, so it's starting to say, okay, I, I, I want to feel all, all of emotions. So it's starting to allow oneself to feel emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, those are probably the first two steps. Oh, I think along with that is loving us, myself. 
because many of us don't love ourselves because we actually hate the inner child because, you know, he or she is the problem. And we don't like ourselves because inside we don't really feel very good about ourselves. We actually don't think we're any good because that may be a childhood message or a belief. Mm-hmm. So just even just to get the courage to look in the mirror. Some of you won't even be able to look in a mirror, but to look in a mirror and say, I love me. I'm pretty bloody terrific. Mm. It's starting those first steps. And then, of course, getting a good therapist or getting with other survivors and starting to heal. It's it's saying, I want to heal, and then finding wherever you live. If you can't come to heal for life, I mean, obviously our program is fantastic, but lots of people can't. But there are lots of wonderful tra- uh, trauma therapists. Any therapist who works with the so-called inner child is going to do the sort of work that we want. A real problem we have in Australia is now that a sort of backlash movement stops psychologists working with the inner child. So the very thing that's going to help us, Mm. they try not to let us go to. And I think that's out of the fear of of psychologists and and organizations, because to let someone release their fear in a, in a, a room seems a very scary thing to do, but it isn't. Mm. <laughs> Only take the moment to release fear. Mm. And, and um, for, or the whole of the therapeutic world has to become less frightened of people letting go of their fear mm-hmm. because people are frightened of fear. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why, that's, why we, that's why therapists who've experienced trauma and done their own healing and released their own fear, in my opinion, are the best therapists because they know it's safe to feel our feelings and they know and they know the difference. There's a wonderful test online, Gottman's emotional test, which if anyone's listening, really helps you look and find out which of the emotions you avoid. That's, mm. that's a good starting point too. Oh, I need to take that test, I'm sure. I did it. I, I took it and discovered I'd always avoided anger. And I thought, yes, that's quite true. I have. That would be my guess about myself too. (laughs) Yes. And I remember the first time I felt anger, I was uh, about 10 10 years into my healing and I was at the center and and there was a guy working on the roof. And he, uh, just after he left, one of the young women there said he'd said something very sexually inappropriate to her. And I was furious and I got in my car and I drove down after him and I stopped him and I, and I said to him, what are you know?" And I was really angry with him. And inside I was laughing because I was going, oh my goodness, I'm being angry for the first time in my life. So while I was really telling him what I thought of him, which is my little girl letting go of her anger, mm-hmm. and, you know, sexually inappropriate, the part of me was just laughing because finally I was free to express anger. Wow. Expressing okay. anger. We have, we have anger pits at Heal for Life. We have places where people can break china. Uh, we have mattresses tied, tied, tied around trees. Really? So they out their anger. They scream out their anger. They oh. release their anger. And it's amazing. And it's so quick when you yeah. release it. That sounds fantastic. I I was just talking to my sister this week about how we both struggle to to express anger, and it's because of experiences we had in our childhood and uh, conditions and beliefs we kind of put on ourselves, and how you almost have to practice being angry because it's so foreign to you after pushing that down and repressing that emotion for so long to then 
like, I was asking her, I'm like, what do you think it would look like for you to be angry? What would you say? Would you yell? Would you cry? Like what, what would anger look like in your body? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, I don't know either. Like, this is something that you almost have to relearn and, and really just like embrace yourself and practicing that emotion because you've been pushing it away for so long. Well, uh, that's absolutely true. And releasing anger doesn't need to be, I mean, you have to be physical to release emotions. So emotions are emotions. So it's, you have to use something. So remember, I'm picking up a pillow and I could just throw it beside me and say, I'm so angry. (laughs) And that will release emotion. But if you do something physically with it it is really important. It's Mm. the physicality that releases the emotion. So try throwing some pillows around your apartment. (laughs) And, and saying that. And culturally, a lot of people aren't allowed to feel emotions. Right. And I used to think that because I used to be in the film industry and I used to coach uh, people of Asian backgrounds uh, because they found it very difficult to express and show emotions. Yep. And um, so I, I kind of accepted that culturally the brains of Asian people were different to Caucasians, white people. And then I was in the Philippines running a healing week in the Philippines with the new team in the Philippines. So I was taking the first week and they said to me, Oh, Liz, you know, in the Philippines, we don't express our emotions, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, that's fine. I'll, I'll just follow, you know, I'll go with the flow. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got some China and they said, well, we've got a China for an anger pit, but no Filipino is going to be breaking plates. And I said, that's fine. We're just, People will do what is right for them. Mm-hmm. No, no worries. So we, we, we did the first session in the morning, which is connecting into your right brain, which is your emotional brain. I have never seen such an explosion of emotion in my life. <laughs> it was abs- there wasn't a piece of china left. Wow. The mattress had been bashed. People had bashed, punched punching bags, screamed, yelled. And my dear Filipino friend said, Oh, it's not, it's cultural. It's not, it's not innately in us. So the suppression of all these emotions is, is, um, is as necessary, whatever, whatever your background culturally or, you know, ethnically, mm-hmm. we all emotions I now know are the same for all of us. And we all, it's really important for all of us that we do, um, discover how to express our emotions, mm. but it's physically See, walking helps connect us with our emotions because it connects the cerebellum and there's still a lot of research on the cerebellum as to, mm-hmm. as to what impact that has. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of ways. But the first, you connect your emotions through creativity as well, mm-hmm. through the right brain. Wow. This is so fascinating. And I'm sure this is only scratching the surface at understanding the neuroscience behind trauma, but also the pathway in which we can heal that childhood trauma more specifically and realize that underneath some of the diagnoses that many of us, some of us may have been given in our life that there's just more to discover and more to be open to and to explore as a pathway to healing. So I just want to say thank you so much. And I also want to ask you, what is the, the mental health healing landscape that you dream of for the future? If, you know, in the future, how would you love to see us start to treat mental health versus how we treat it or how we've been treating it up until now? I think we should drop the word mental health. 
Mm. I think your physical health. I think we should just make it exactly the same as any other illness. In other words, working towards how we heal people, not how we medicate people. It's totally different. As management comes into the word with mental health, we don't need to be managed. We need to heal. So for me, the future would be when anyone who had any sort of an emotional issue, the person would say, what happened in your childhood? Or does this remind you of something in your childhood? And every doctor's waiting room in the questions, it would say, have you suffered from any form of childhood trauma? And it wouldn't be a question, some people might not choose to answer it, that's fine, but at least we'd be asked, at least it would be acknowledged, mm-hmm. and at least, and, and, I, and it wouldn't be, it's not a blame environment. I would, I would love the mental health environment not to be, by that I mean that there's too much blame of the people who did it to us. Yeah. And we're taking the emphasis off healing myself. If it's, if I, if I had cancer or if I had flu or coronavirus and I looked, who gave this to me? It's put all my energy into, I'm going to get that person. How dare they give this to me? Well, I'm taking the energy away from myself. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, stuff happens. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter. What matters is healing myself, mm-hmm. healing me because I matter. Mm-hmm. And then I might choose to help other people by saying who gave me the coronavirus because mm-hmm. whoever gave it to me has got to be put in isolation or something's got to happen to them and they've got to be helped. But um, our current way of uh, the, the blame game that goes around childhood trauma, I also don't think is helping us to heal. Yeah. In your book, you talk about trauma-informed self-healing, and I think that really encompasses what you just said, is that we are our own greatest healers and we have this self-healing ability, but if we're focusing all of our energy on finding a person or a thing or an event in our life to blame, then we're not self-healing. That energy is going outward versus inward towards what could be really supportive in healing ourselves. So again, thank you so much. Liz, where can people get your book and learn more about all the services that you have they, to offer? They can get the book on Amazon. They can get the book. Uh, they can look, just Google Heal for Life. Heal for Life will will We'll give them, we have a Facebook page. Um, please join our Facebook page. We have Instagram. Um, the book is called Heal for Life because mm-hmm. you be heal permanently. And my name again is Liz Mulliner, which is spelled M-U-L-L-I-N-A-R. So that also Googling me will um, enable you to um, find the book. Thank you so much for uh, sharing just all of your knowledge and wisdom with us today. I'm sure the listeners have some takeaways to now go home and digest and then integrate into their life. Thanks again. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Bye. My golly, I hope that that opened up your eyes to just simply the way in which we raise awareness of things like suicide, depression, or any mental health issues or things we've labeled as mental health issues. And and it's important to know whether the awareness is around more medications and drugs and money to big pharmaceutical companies, or if it's to create space for true healing and support. Because while I don't deny that there's definitely a place for conventional medicine and medication, Unless the underlying cause of these mental health issues is addressed, the problem is simply perpetuated. And what you, I hope, took away from today is that 
the underlying cause of many of these issues may be childhood trauma. And oftentimes that childhood trauma is defined or thought of as these big capital T like abuses in a child's life. But childhood trauma can also be on a, on a smaller scale of simply being held to super high expectations even. And so I think it's also important for us to redefine the way that we look at that word trauma and realize there is a whole spectrum of different traumas that we can experience and that each child, each human being interprets these things in completely different ways. Like we were talking about around like siblings and one, even in one family, uh, one sibling may interpret it and process it in a completely different way than another sibling. So I just want to share with you my dream for the future. I dream of a mental health healing landscape where patients are asked questions about their childhood before being given a Xanax where individuals receive an hour of undisturbed connection to another human before they're rushed out of an office, where clients are presented tools for rewiring their subconscious instead of numbing themselves out, where patients are sent to a functional diagnostic nutritionist before being put on an antidepressant immediately, where individuals feel seen, heard, and understood enough to share their deepest truth, and where clients are empowered to believe they can heal and their diagnosis is not a life sentence. And 10 years from now, I hope for better access to tools like inner child healing, hypnosis, subconscious reprogramming, timeline therapy, emotional freedom technique, EMDR, which is based off neuro-linguistic programming, nutritional therapy, and functional medicine that do not create a dependency on something that perpetuates the problem, but instead gets to the root cause of the symptoms. Mental health challenges like anxiety and depression will be seen as symptoms, not diagnoses. That is my true hope, my dream and what I hope for the future of a mental health healing landscape. And I'd love to hear from you. What are your deepest hopes, dreams, and desires for the future of our mental health healing landscape? What do you hope to see in the future? I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode. It was a really special one for me, and it's something that deeply touches my heart. And I want tools like hypnosis to become more readily available to the entire freaking planet. <laughs> so as you've heard me talk about, I have a free guided hypnosis to support cellular healing that I'd love to offer to you for free. Simply go over to iTunes and share your honest feedback on this episode and the Uncensored Empath podcast as a whole, and make sure to screenshot your review, then email it over to Sarah with an H at autoimmunetribe.com. And in return, I will email you your free guided hypnosis. This is an opportunity to heal your relationship with your body and tap back into its innate healing abilities. You are so freaking powerful and so freaking deserving of this. Thank you so much in advance for your support. And I can't wait to talk to you next time. 